Hello, and thanks for joining me on episode 22 of Shelf Love. Every week, we use romance novels as the text to explore identity, relationships, and the society that we live in. I'm your host, Andrea Martucci, and this week I'm joined by Tiff Marcello, author of Romance and Women's Fiction that seeks to tell joyful stories of Filipino relationships without the oppression. First, we talk about book clubs, how Tiff loves novels written in the context of hope, and her romance influences. Then we dig deep into a romance worth reading, Thirsty by Mia Hopkins. This sexy contemporary explores outcasts, antiheroes, and forgiveness. We also discuss communities, how communities aren't always what they seem to outsiders, and the personal calculus one makes about wanting to continue belonging to a community. When do you stay, and when is it time to go? This episode is sponsored by Owner of a Broken Heart by Sharice Hodges. Keeney Allen really likes my dramatic readings of book descriptions, so <clears throat> here we go. Sports writer Nina Richardson had the perfect life away from her family's famous shadow, but a social media blow-up and rejection by her boyfriend brought her back to their peaceful Charleston, South Carolina B&B to figure out what went wrong. There's no way she's going to trust the sparks flying between her and handsome new employee Clinton Jefferson. It's just reckless, rip his clothes off, one night and forget it lust, right? Fresh from working for the Richardson's biggest rival, Clinton wants to show his modernization ideas aren't sabotage or a gimmick, but he can't resist showing this stubborn, fiery woman how she should be loved. But false accusations and Nina's returned ex shake their passion and fragile trust to the core. Can Clinton and Nina untangle what they really want in time? You can find Owner of a Broken Heart by Sharice Hodges wherever books are sold. Learn more at kensingtonbooks.com. My name is Tiff Marcello, and I am a romance and women's fiction author, and my fifth book is coming out in March. It's called Once Upon a Sunset. I am a mom. I'm a military spouse, a veteran, and I love to read, and I consider myself a reader first. And that's it. So I'm in the romance novel book club at Porter Square Books that Amanda Deal runs, and we actually spoke to you a couple months ago. Yeah, that was fun. I mean, I love doing Skype or FaceTime drop-ins. I think it's such a great opportunity. I'm an avid book clubber in general, so we haven't had an author come speak at the book clubs that I belong to. And I am a fangirl first and foremost and a reader first and foremost. So I'm glad to be able to stop in and kind of give my take and to meet people because writing is sometimes a solitary sport. So Yeah. <laughs> and I think sometimes it's hard to find people physically in a local community that you can talk about books with. Like I have like my one friend at work where we're like, what are you reading? Mm -hmm. What are you reading? And like, you know, we can we can kind of get down and talk about books. But I mean, this has been what's so wonderful about the community on social media in Romancelandia. And then like, I feel like romance novelists in general are like really accessible. <laughs> yes, I think so too. And I think the topics that can be addressed within the realm of romance is so much more accessible too, because I feel like the messages are pretty clear right off the bat. And there's no pretentiousness to it, in my opinion. So mm -hmm. there's no intimidation in wanting to talk about certain things within the context of romance versus, let's say, uh, literary fiction, where there is a little bit of intimidation factor. And maybe among book clubbers, they're like, did I really get that right? You know, it's mm. there's no real true answer yeah. when you're interpreting a book. That's why I love going to book clubs is because oftentimes my interpretation is different from someone else's. And I love it that when I'm talking about romances, there's already that context that the happily ever after is there. So in the end, it's like happy. 
and everybody's good to go. So you can kind of delve into these really tough, probably tough subjects, but understand in the back of your head that everything kind of turned out okay in the story. Yeah. As I do this podcast, I'm continually amazed. I read a book and I think I'm like, okay, well, these are obviously the, the, the themes. Right. And then I hear the themes that my guests are saying, you know, well, I want to talk about this. And sometimes I'm like, oh, huh, I didn't think about that. Yeah. It really reveals what's important to that other person. So you get to know that other person so much better. I'm military spouse, so we move around a lot. So I really try to plug into the book clubs that are in the neighborhoods or in the communities. And it's kind of neat because some of these women are like, or I don't think I've had any men in my book clubs, but these other book clubbers might be completely different than me. And through the subject of talking about books, you get to see what's really important in their lives, mm-hmm. which is really intimate, actually. Oh, it's, you know? it's incredibly intimate. I mean, you are revealing your own maybe anxieties or yeah. sensitivities or life experience. Yeah, so intimate. Yeah, for sure. And so when you talked with us, we read The Key to Happily Ever After. So The Key to Happily Ever After is women's fiction, right? I mean, if if you had to categorize it. So can you kind of talk a little bit about your evolution into women's fiction? It sounded from our discussion that there was, I don't want to say publisher pressure, but the publisher was pushing you more in that direction. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. And if there's a larger market movement that that is signaling. Yeah, you know, it wasn't really publisher pressure more like it was an offer. Mm. So I pitched The Key to Happily Ever After as a four book romance series of four sisters. I envisioned initially that each sister would have their story in the context that they were all trying to get this wedding shop up and running. Mm-hmm. And they had their own story with their own happily ever after. And they, each of them had a key component within the actual wedding store. So the thread of trying to get this wedding shop up and running was really the external factor. And then I was offered for all three, what at the time four sisters, but we ended up with three to be in one story and it would be more of a sister story than a romance. And I jumped in on it like, like, (laughs) I didn't even have to give like two seconds. I was like, yes. But I think that is because I have a love of both book club fiction and romance. And to be able to write this family for me was of utmost importance. I read a variety of books and I believe that I have stories that are genre romance and contemporary fiction. I believe I have other stories even beyond that. Um, when I first started writing, I, write, I wrote YA, and I actually tried to get an agent as a YA author, but did not succeed. And so my biggest thing for me was that I would have that happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Because in my opinion, that is, that is the utmost importance. Because I have a greater, I guess, internal mission to be able to bring Filipino stories out into the world in a positive light and without the oppression. Mm -hmm. For me, that is number one important in my life. And secondly, I wanted to write all of these stories that have been burgeoning from (laughs) my heart since I was like, you know, seven or eight or nine. And to be able to write a sister story, in my opinion, for me, it was a positive more than it was a takeaway. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow. So I get to write romance and this relationship between the sisters. And I jumped on it. And I'm, I'm very happy to go down this road because Once Upon a Sunset, which is coming out in March, is a mother-daughter story, which has been 
trying to come out of me for a very long time, and that includes a found family story, which is essentially kind of like the the origin story of my life. So I'm very pleased and happy about it. I just want to write for the rest of my life. Yeah. But I really want to be able to have these joyful stories out there. Yeah. So I shouldn't have said pressure, but I guess like encouragement, (laughs) publisher encouragement to move towards women's fiction or at least tell this story as women's fiction instead of a romance. It's all about relationships, right? Yeah. So the key to Happily Ever After, you said, is a sister story. And then your next book, Once Upon a Sunset, is a mother-daughter story. And so these are, these are, you know, people's very important relationships in their life. And, you know, obviously romantic relationships can be one kind of important relationship in your life, but also familiar relationships or, you know, found family or, or friends or, you know, whatever. Those are all other important relationships. So I, I like thinking about it in that way. Like they are different genres, women's fiction and romance, but really at their core, I mean, you are writing about relationships and your focus is on telling joyful stories. So not like depressing women's fiction. <laughs> yeah. Which and, is another and genre. I like to wrap it up. Yeah. And I totally like to wrap it up with... <laughs> With a true happily ever after. And I love to read books with romances besides genre romance that I read. So like with The Key to Happily Ever After, all three had a romance thread. And with Once Upon a Sunset, both mom and daughter have romance threads. And so we'll see that bloom and also kind of wrap up at the very end of the story. And right now I'm writing in a book club far away, which is a friendship story with three friends, women who are in book clubs, and they have their romantic thread. So mm-hmm. I can't help but write it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of this, you know, even as a child, like all of the stories that I wrote, there was always kissing. There was always a happily ever after and the couple getting together in the end. I love the classic story. I think Norma Perez Hernandez articulated this like you know I just want the Barbie dolls to kiss like yes you know when you're, when you're a kid it's like it's all about just make them kiss how do how do we yeah. do some stuff so these <laughs> these two people or or three people whatever maybe when you're a kid you're a little bit less adventurous but so how, how do we get them to kiss yeah I, and and that is actually it's so funny because even even if I'm writing contemporary fiction like I'm still like hitting those marks like wait a minute where are they in this relationship where where is <laughs> Where is this couple in the relationship? Have they kissed yet? Because obviously the heat level is very like if zero to, you know, 10 firebombs, it's like zero, right? (laughs) But I'm like, where are they in the love? (laughs) Like, you know, so I'm still looking at these romantic arcs as seriously as external plot because it's important to me that they find some kind of romantic happiness in there as well. So which romance novelists or which romance novels do you think have influenced your own writing the most? I'm a really new romance reader. I'm actually, I've only been reading romance for about a decade. I came in late. Only a decade. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, as compared. Like in the scheme of your life, right? Like you were not a romance reader from like 13, like, like some of us. Yeah. And not only that, like, I feel like I'm really behind. So, you know, after leaving college, I was a nursing major, so I didn't read a lot except for nursing books. And when I got our first duty station was Germany back when Internet was not really that great. And so I just I read mostly Oprah books Mm -hmm. for like five years. Whatever Oprah said was announced. That's what I read. And then deployment started to ramp up. And then I started to read YA romance, you know, Jenny Han, Sarah Dezen, and you've got... uh, 
Katie McGarry. And then suddenly I figured out that there was a Kindle, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I started reading Elle Kennedy, Jennifer Armantrout, like Colleen Hoover, all these like folks that were really publishing hardcore, like on Kindle uh, or e-reader. After that, it was like a slew of just new adult. I read a lot of new adult because I could read it underneath my bed, underneath my covers. I just pictured you underneath your bed yeah. reading books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was that lonely. I was like anywhere. But yeah, so there were a lot of titles. You know what I mean? Like you'd read one and then at the very end, you would just find the next book. It's all a mishmash because it was like years of just reading, uh, consuming new adult romance. And then that's when I really started to write new adult as well. YA, I did not get picked up. I aged up to new adult. And then that book aged up to adult, which became North to You, which is my first book. And then I was plugged into Romancelandia. And then that just opened my mind. It just blew my brain. And then I started reading like Alyssa Cole and then Alicia Rye and um, Beverly Jenkins and then Annie Rains, who ended up being, my, you know, she and I are very close friends. So I am still like catching up. I cannot say that there's one book or one, there's one author because I am like really still in that clamoring stage. Like I read J.R. Ward's, the first book of the Daggerhood series. I, I read that first book like last month mm. and I was like, oh my gosh. And then Lisa Kleypas, I'm still like catching up with the Ravenel series. And Tessa Dare, I think I've read, I, I've read everything up to the most recent. So I am still blown away by the breadth of romance that I loved. And of course there's Romance Class, which is the uh, romance authors, the contingent over there in the Philippines. And I'm still like catching up on Mina Esguera's books. You know? mm, so, yeah. so it's really, it's really been a wonderful journey to be able to read. And so I, I have several books going on at once. Right now I'm reading Juliet Cross's Wolf Gone Wild, and it came out last week. And then, of course, I read two of Mia Hopkins. I reread two of Mia's books this week, which is The Trashed and Thirsty. I'm influenced by so many, and I think it's because the world opened up to me just in the last 10 years. So are you ready to talk about thirsty? Yes. All right. Yes. Woo-hoo. I'm so thirsty. I have three beverages here. <laughs> this book made me thirsty. <laughs> it is such a good book. And I think I'd mentioned I'd read it about a year, year and a half ago, something like that. I was like, okay, am I ready to reread this? Because I'm not a rereader of books. You know, usually I thought that maybe I would just touch on it a couple, a couple of points, a couple areas. And then I started it and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't stop. I just kept reading until the very end. And then I started doing the highlights. I had a lot to think about the second time. So why did you choose it? Why do you think Thirsty is a romance novel worth reading? So I met Mia Hopkins back in November. We had like a little book tour together. So I flew from DC and we met two other Filipino authors at Filipino American authors at The Rip Bodice. So there's two parts to this. So first is the person. So Mia Hopkins is pretty amazing. And she's a very uh, thoughtful author. And while we were having, we had like a podcast interview there and she had said, I like to write about outcasts because she said that she sort of sometimes felt like an outcast. It just really hit me because I have always said that I live in the in-between. Being an American and being of Filipino heritage and being born in the Philippines, but moving here, blah, blah, blah. There's a whole life story. But 
I felt connected to her in that sense. So that was the impetus to like push me over. Mm -hmm. But thirsty in itself, when I read it the first time, had so much in it from topics about community environment all the way down to identity, couched in this antihero with a happily ever after, with a strong love interest. I was sold. So as soon as you asked me, I was like, this, this is the book. As we'll probably chat with it, there's just so much, so much in here that we can dig deep yeah. about. So. so Thirsty is about an ex-con. He goes by the name of Ghost and his real name is Sal, who has just come out of five years in prison for um, stealing cars, which he did. He was in a gang and technically is still in the gang um, because this is you don't get out of gangs, really. And so he is trying to keep his nose clean. He is working as a janitor at night through a series of events, ends up living in the garage of one of the members of the community who is looking for a little bit of extra cash for her family and lets him sleep in the garage. And wouldn't you know, she has a granddaughter named Vanessa, <laughs> who uh, Sal has, she's, Vanessa's the good girl. She was the one who was going to make it out of the neighborhood, but then got pregnant when she was 17 by another, one of his fellow gang members who was a little bit younger than him. That man died shortly after they got married before the daughter was even born. So Sleepy is was his name. And so Vanessa has been, she, she studied hard in school, got got into and got scholarships. She got scholarships to all of these schools and just was not able to get out of the neighborhood and and do those things that she dreamed of because she has a baby. And so she's living with her grandmother and she is not part of the whole gang scene of the neighborhood, is kind of working to become a CPA and, and all of that. And so they they become, they enter into a relationship, but at the same time, Sal, aka Ghost, is really trying to figure out what his life is going to be now that he's out and feels himself getting pulled back into the gang drama and doesn't know how to kind of extricate himself from that and really build a life. He wants to build a life with Vanessa, but doesn't really feel like he has anything to offer. So that's kind of the gist of the story. And one thing that's super interesting about this book is that it is told in the first person point of view from Sal's perspective and only from his perspective. So a lot of times when there is first person in romance novels, it's the female main character. And I, I think this is really rare to only get the male main character's perspective in, in a romance novel. What did you think about that, Tiff? Yeah, I loved it. When I first read this book, I did not know it was a single point of view male character with the with the hero hero. And I went two chapters in and it didn't flip over to the other side. And I was like, wait a minute, what is going on? So I actually went like five chapters down and then started reading. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is all with Sal. And I thought that was so compelling. It pulled me right in. And I think it is so appropriate. I mean, I've heard her say, I've heard the author say that Sal wouldn't shut up. You know, he just kept talking. And that's why she went with it. And I think that was definitely the right move. We know that Sal's name, or I guess nickname, is Ghost. And he, in order to see Ghost 
become Sal, we had to see everything from start to finish, in my opinion. We see like there's so many like touches of and I think this is why Sal kept speaking to her, because the idea of his name, his name Ghost, kept popping up like in the text. Mm -hmm. There's like like even from the very beginning, it says, you want a hero before we start. You should know I'm not him. And Salvador was my only name a time before Ghost. So Salvador was him before his before he got into the gang before everything kind of went downhill and then he became ghost and so all since then he's always become this ghost of a person you know there is a statement uh, he said something towards uh, the middle of the book where he said that um, I don't feel anything Mm-hmm. You know, things just pass through me. And I'm like, wow, that is really like a ghost where you kind of just go through life. And then towards the end, he says that she makes him feel something. And that's where he be- starts to become Sal again. So I think that it's really compelling that we got to see him from start to finish. It really makes his life of utmost importance. And I think we needed that because we had to feel this compassion. That the author obviously had for Sal as well. Mm -hmm. I think it also creates some interesting opportunities for reflecting on masculinity. And he does not really ascribe to these sort of elements of toxic masculinity, but he notes at various points sort of the lessons that he's learned living in the community he lives in and being part of a gang where the lesson that he has been taught is to suppress your emotions And, you know, don't act too excited about anything. I mean, basically because interest in something could be weaponized and something could be taken away from you if somebody knew that you enjoyed it. And so it's it's very much a world of holding the cards close to your chest and lots of uh, bravado and posturing to show power. He, at this point, is not like that. You know, I think the experience he's really been humbled and has had a lot of time to reflect being in prison but he's so self-reflective when it comes to those things like he develops a friendship with alan right i love that yeah i love that friendship that he struck he stuck with him in fact wasn't his conversation where he starts to cry was that with alan yes when he began to cry yeah i thought that was really that was really becoming sal you know that was that was Sal coming too. So I found this quote that said, well, he said, just like how you had mentioned, he said, a real man doesn't show his emotions. And it's true, right? Mm-hmm. And there's another where he has to hold himself is um, when he's with his boss. I think it's Barry. Yes. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Barry White. <laughs> Barry White. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and he says, you want them to say things like Sal, the gangster, the ex-con. He's so nice. Let's give the fucker a raise. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a topic of nice and how people are more open to nice people, even if they're being fake. Yeah, he has a lot of awareness of how people are perceiving him. Yeah. And I think particularly around I'm an ex-con, how do people receive that information and then regard me after knowing that like do they feel awkward are they weirdly interested in it in kind of a carnival-esque way how do I take how I present to the world as this big tattooed gangster and maneuver there's like this context switching right like he knows with Barry in the gym as a the janitorial crew at these sort of like high class is it east El- east side yeah. businesses yeah. it's be the kind of like jovial easygoing hardworking 
I'm not even right. here. Like, I'm just doing a great job. And yeah, like, I'm, I'm easy to get along with. I'm really, like, suppressing my self in these situations. And then he knows that he needs to act a different way when he's in his own neighborhood. And, I mean, he's, he's acting differently than he used to when he was an active member of the gang. But he also, yeah, there's, there's a lot of context switching that he's doing and understanding how he's perceived in different environments. Yeah. And I think that that's why I think too, right? Like it's important to get his point of view and his total point of view, because you almost have, you have to see all of it. Um, you have to couch it so that as the antihero that we will root for him in the end. Because if we didn't see the total, which it's very hard to write two total points of view in one book, mm-hmm. right? So for the entire book to be in his point of view, you know, the author really had to dig deep mm-hmm. in order to get the little bitty things. But we needed all of it so that we are empathetic right. towards this character and that we accept him as truly the hero and that he's changed. Right, yeah. This whole book really pushed my empathy levels a little bit because I am generally an empathetic person, so I already know this about myself. But even more so with this knowing Sal, I wonder to myself, like, how would I feel if my 14 becomes a 20-year-old and came home? with an Mm ex-con or what if one of my children becomes an ex-con or what if I was 20 would I accept an ex-con you know it's one of these things where when is forgiveness what is the end of your line Mm -hmm. because the community has accepted him back Vanessa accepted him even Vanessa's grandmother right accepted him immediately right kind of saw Vanessa's grandmother saw his potential before any anyone else at that point Mm -hmm. she didn't have to she knows about she knew about him they've all grown up there she could have said you've got to figure it out but she didn't she took him in for a measly you know 200 bucks for two months so what is our forgiveness factor where does it lie so it really did kind of stump me yeah it's interesting because normally I will acknowledge that just hearing the sketch of a character in a description, you listen to that and you're like, ooh, how am I going to get on the side of somebody who has, you know, legitimately committed crimes? And right. they're not violent crimes. Right. They're they're property crimes, which sometimes are punished more heavily than violent crimes. Mm-hmm. But, like, look, I mean, I definitely would not get behind somebody who was gleefully engaged in violence yeah i think that mia hopkins does an excellent job of building the atmosphere and the context for sal's choices yeah i mean this honestly this reminds me a lot about reading an unconditional freedom yeah and janetta in that book she is the daughter of a slave owner and a former slave and so she is half black and half white but has been living on a plantation where enslaved people are like working the fields and and serving her and stuff and when you start the book she's honestly kind of like I don't get the problem with slavery and yeah you take somebody like that who you're like oh my god it's so obvious of course what how can you not understand how terrible this is and how this impacts you and da 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 all these things but then over the course of the story it is totally explored how this woman's life situation and kind of her own 
need to survive in this messed up world has created that understanding of the world. And I think with Sal, you can be like, how could you think it's okay to go, and this happens towards the end, you know, go wreak havoc at a housing development. Right, right. How could you go along with this at all? And then you understand the context and you're like, this is not an environment where you actually truly have the choices to just say no. And if Sal at any point of that event was like, guys, I'm out. I'm not doing this. I disagree with this. He would have had a bullet in the brain. Yep. Like, we have to be realistic about the realities of these situations. And everybody doesn't have the ability to kind of like ride off on a white horse and hold up to what they really believe. And I, and I think that this book does an amazing job, definitely through that first person point of view, of exploring kind of his history and his understanding of the world he lives in and kind of how he can navigate it and survive. Part of the journey is also being a bit less passive and becoming more active in kind of deciding how he wants to live his life. So it's all part of his journey. And I really liked how Vanessa really was the counter to his conscience, you know, because they're starting to get together. And and she said, we don't have to say yes to every single thing that comes along, she says. We don't always have to be pathetically grateful for what people toss our way. We have a choice and sometimes the correct answer is no. I thought that was really amazing. And I think that becomes like a secondary conscience to Sal. Mm -hmm. You know, Sal is already battling his own demons. And then to have a woman that still loves him and still supports him, but is able to give him another point of view is like critical to his change, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. And and she doesn't judge him. I thought I thought that that was really I mean, towards the end, of course, when they had that huge fight, obviously, after he went out with the gang, but there's very little judgment that occurs Mm -hmm. between the two. And I think it's because everybody in this in this whole book is having a second chance. Mm-hmm. So you got Sal, obviously, he's obvious, he's having a second chance, and she's having her second chance at falling in love, at feeling things, and even the swing has a second chance, mm-hmm. you know, like he builds a swing and the bike and has the a bike. second chance, you know, it's like everybody here is having a second chance because the community in itself is such a nuance, uh, such a, a community that's kind of always struggling, though it, does not make it less powerful because I, I do believe the community here is its own character and how it's it's held up throughout all the changes and what we'll see later on in trash is this gentrification, you know. Mm. It's really such a such a great book and it even has so much humor in it. So like the dog, I mean yeah. like these moments with the dog would come like at a perfect time yeah because it's it's placed so well like you actually have to laugh out loud because you're like oh my gosh I needed that or when Abuela would like say something you know about Mm -hmm. the two of them getting together I just could not stop laughing like oh I'm glad you finally consummated your relationship and and Vanessa's like I'm too tired to be embarrassed by you right now yeah yeah the grandmother's like, mm, I guess he did his job. Like, I loved her. She was so saucy. Yeah. You know, speaking Agreed. of the dog, there was almost this relationship with the dog, too, where when Sal first yeah. shows up, the dog is always yapping at him and, like, tearing out and kind of coming at him and, like, nipping at his ankles. 
And then as he integrates more into the family, the dog, they have more like quiet, chilling moments together. Yeah. Like they're just hanging out. The dog is not yapping. The dog is not biting. It kind of also then shows his integration into this family. Yeah. And then when trouble starts to come around, you see that the dog is protecting the family. Right. And so the dog has accepted Sal as part of the family. So then the dog also becomes like this portent of doom. You know, like yeah. like trouble, you know, must yeah. protect the family from troubles. So something about first person point of view and limited, so only one character, is we don't get to see Vanessa's point of view in this. And I think that what Mia Hopkins does so well is Sal is so observant. Mm-hmm. And so we get to see... Not just how he views Vanessa, but signs of how Vanessa feels about him that, I mean, he doesn't always register them as the way we, the reader, might register them. Yeah. But I think particularly there were all these things during their sex scenes where, I mean, first of all, I was like, oh my God, can we all have a sexual partner who is paying such close attention to the details of like, (laughs) oh, I I saw you do that once and I know you like it. So I've added that to my repertoire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally you could kind of see like from Vanessa's physical reactions, how she felt about him, you know, how how great the sex was, obviously. But I do think that that's a hard balance. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll admit, I don't know if I'd want every book I read to be only one person's first person point of view, but I think it was it was really interesting and I think it was really well done. Yeah, I agree. And part of me too, and I can't speak for Latinx people and Latinx characters, but in my family culture... I would not even say Filipino culture because that's also varied. But in my family culture, the the women are the, it's a true matriarch. Mm -hmm. And I saw this family, you know, you have Abuela and she's, Shanita, she's the matriarch of this family. And as Vanessa is over her daughter, I felt like in, in this specific story, like Vanessa is the matriarch of this love story. Mm. I felt like she was truly the strong one. And I almost didn't need to see because I needed to see Sal grow. It's kind of an interesting thing. And I, my trust in Vanessa as the strong woman was like a hundred percent. I was all in. Like when I read Vanessa, I saw my mom. I saw like my grandmother. I saw like a woman that was solid. And of course, that's not always true in any relationship. All people in every relationship has their ups and downs and their weaknesses. But in this story, in this caption of time, Vanessa was like the true north. I felt that kind of strength. I kind of liked it. I think that with so many books that we read and women are always couched as, quote, unlikable or quote, not strong or weak or whiny, blah, 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 all this stuff. I loved coming into this book and really knowing 100% of the time that Vanessa was like, awesome. Like she was going to lead the way here. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a breath of fresh air for me. Well, and that she was going to hold him accountable. Yeah. Yeah. She wasn't going to let him get away with any shenanigans, but that was tempered with her own understanding of the situation where she was very, very much a realist. Like, mm-hmm. she wasn't like making ultimatums that were unrealistic for him. Right. She, of course, is going to do whatever to keep her family safe and not bring more trouble to her door. 
But I liked that the forgiveness at the end between mm-hmm. her and him, um, was that grammatical English? I, think. <laughs> <laughs> I understood it. That's Thank you. Bet- between the two of them, I loved that her forgiveness, like it, it didn't require groveling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sal, I mean, Sal would grovel. Like he's, he's not yeah. so full of like, you know, pride in that way that he would not do it. But it's like she sees the bike that he's refurbishing and she, I, I feel like she like truly does see what is in his heart and understands the circumstances and is able to say, I can see that you're on a different path here and we've had some time apart and you've respected kind of my need for distance And I can see that you are different and I can trust that. I think maybe forgiveness does require an element of trust. And I don't mean like just blind trust. Right. If two people are in a relationship and the other person continually does things that are showing who that person is. I mean, don't trust that person. Right. I mean, I think the relationship they built, Vanessa can trust that Sal is a man who is, he really is not just trying his best the way her dead husband was like at one point she says well sleepy like he was always trying to be better but he wasn't actually succeeding at being better <laughs> i think yeah where she can yeah. see that sal is truly he has turned a corner he's doing the work he's going to therapy he's talking about the stuff that he's doing in therapy he he is sharing with her his concerns and like the actual situation that he initially didn't tell her about when he gets kind of pulled back into gang stuff. And I think that allows her to forgive him without, I personally don't love these, like the grand gestures, the, the groveling, right. all of that. This to me was a much richer and in, intimate moment of forgiveness. Right. And I really do believe that like Vanessa and her grandmother are of a reflection of a community that is understanding and is forgiving and is willing to give people second chances. I feel like they represent so much more than themselves. And the aspiration to be able to be that kind of community to say, I know you did wrong and, and you're trying to do your best. And I'm, I'm good with that. Mm-hmm. It's wise. It was great to be able to see that in the love interest. Because you kind of hope that everybody has their happily ever after no matter what has happened in their life. I mean, obviously there are some really bad people out there and I'm not talking about them, right? But the average person who has backstory, who has their own faults, that they can find somebody, romantic or otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. That will accept them for who they are and not judge them with what they did in the past and kind of just take steps forward. I love that it is Vanessa that went to him. Mm. I love that. Because it allowed for her, it really showed that Sal wanted to change on his own. Yeah. It wasn't like her saying, you have to change, you have to do this. Yes. And I'm coming back only if you change. Like there was never that kind of conversation that if you changed and I'm coming back. No, it's she was disappointed in him. You know, she was disappointed in him and she walked away. And he had to come to that point where am I changing? Who am I changing for? You know, am I changing for her? Am I changing for me? And he changed for himself. He changed for the betterment so that he can give his brother something when his brother got out of jail. Mm -hmm. So for her to come back, to me, that spoke volumes also that she loved him so much that she's 
she's ready. I thought that was really great because how much pressure it is, is it, you know what I mean? To be with a person that you loved and then they betrayed you. And then he kept begging, please take me back. Please take Mm -hmm. me back. I mean, there's so much coercion in that. And it feels romantic at times and movies can probably movies and books can kind of put a romantic spin to that but there's nothing more pure than moving on and then the two of them finding themselves first and then coming together Mm -hmm. I think that's that's really neat and I think it's in line with Sal's character where he even as he is finding himself and having more confidence in a direction that he wants to take with his life he still doesn't I don't think really think he's a huge catch. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. He knows he loves her, but he also can acknowledge that she might be better off without him. And so if anything, she needs to convince him that he has added something to her life that she finds valuable in, in seeking out in him. They still have room, they still have to grow. I mean, you know, they, and this is like towards yeah. the end, like you feel that great triumph for them. You feel it even more for Sal because you know that he's found something for himself and it's extra bonus because Vanessa came back. But then you also, in the back of your mind, really understand that there's a lot to work out here. Yeah. And I really love that. But it doesn't take away, like knowing that doesn't take away from the joy. In like saying, oh my gosh, I'm back together. Yeah. Thank God. You know, and how was this going to happen? You know, like the first time I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, how is this going to work? Mm-hmm. You know, it, Mia Hopkins and Naima Simone. Naima Simone is like an amazing author that takes you there, that like takes you down to the bottom, bottom. And you're wondering like, oh my gosh, how are you going to get me to the HEA? But sure enough, they find ways. And I think it's because you know their characters so well and the author knows and writes the characters so well. That when there's the turning point, when the resolution, like you believe it and understanding that there's still work to be done. Right. It's like inertia. Like I believe that they've been swinging around on the end of a rope and then the rope kind of like released them into the air and they're just, they're just going to keep rolling. I believe they're going to keep moving in that direction. They're not where they need to be yet, but they're going to get there. Right. I agree completely. And it's maybe technically a happily for now. Yeah. But I also, you know, like sometimes like maybe in like a YA in particular, you're like, this is a happily for now. And, you know, maybe they're going to drift apart and they're going to go to different colleges and they'll meet other people. But like, I'm satisfied with this relate. Like this is a, a moment in their life and maybe it won't be that they're together forever, but there's, there's some sort of like emotional resolution there. In this book, they're not engaged in, you know, buying a house together and you know, popping out more babies happily ever after. But right. I feel like they are going to be together forever, whatever that is. Yes. <laughs> yes, I agree. I, I There was like no question. There was like no question. And I think it's because I believed in the capacity of Vanessa to forgive. I believe in her strength. So it's interesting that this whole thing is in first person point of view, but I felt like Vanessa was so strong. Mm-hmm. I loved that. I love reading about matriarchal societies, you know, like Mm -hmm. I love reading stories where the women are just really taking over, probably because that's how I I grew up. Like in our household, like it was a pretend patriarchy. (laughs) I feel like my dad thought he was the boss, but he really wasn't. You know, it was my mom through and through. And that was one of the things that she instilled in me. She was like, and the only time she was able to really 
express it was when we watched because my mom you know she's much older than me so when we talk it sometimes you know the arrows go in different directions but we watched big fat greek wedding together and there was a scene where the mother she says to her daughter i don't worry i'm the neck and the neck turns the head mm. right and it was like one of those things where my mom looked at me and she's like i am the neck it's like one of those things now i understood that was what she was trying to tell me there's this thing where Without that, the neck, everything crumbles. <laughs> Without your spinal cord, there's nothing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I felt like because I love seeing this kind of a family culture where she's super strong from like the, her toes up to her head. And doesn't mean that she's perfect, but there's a certain strength that comes with being a single mom and raising a child on your own and then being raised by a super strong grandmother. Even though, you know, she's the book couches her as being very humorous and and silly, but it takes a lot to be a single grandmother raising your granddaughter who is raising your great granddaughter. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot. There's a lot yeah. there. But she doesn't crumble under that, right? No. I mean, that's the yeah. The grandmother's personality. I'm now I'm like trying to remember her name. Chinita. Chinita, yes. So Chinita, she she takes this joy in life that is yeah, mm -hmm. she, she's there for her family. She's not frivolous. I would not call her frivolous. I just would consider her somebody who just takes joy in life. And also, I mean, it's like she, I think is a little bit with Vanessa, like, all right, you're the serious one. I'm freed up to lighten things up here. And so kind of talking about the community a bit, I thought that was a really, I thought it was very well developed the way this community was where obviously there, there were these strong family bonds. So people tended to stay in the neighborhood. So parents, grandparents, you know, multiple generations are living either together or in close proximity. But then also there was this general banding together of the neighborhood and so there's the gang component of it where there was this historical understanding that the gang protected the neighborhood it was their community yes they did unsavory things but they protected their own but the larger community there was so much sort of support and people would have these there's this one woman who's selling like a, a corn soup out of a like a shopping cart and she and like so these like little industries where people are like oh well of course I'm going to buy food from this lady because she's out here trying to make an honest living and the soup's going to be delicious so why would I not buy it and like I think just this familiarity in the neighborhood and it felt very supportive yeah and th yes there's kind of like the the elements of it that are dangerous Right. Like, you can't ignore that. But then there's also an incredibly warm aspect to this neighborhood. And I was thinking a lot about a safety net and thinking about class in this novel. Social class and economic class are huge topics. Mm -hmm. Sal, in particular, just getting out of prison. I mean, there are, there are times where he has like $20 in his wallet and has to, or $10 has to cover food for the next couple days until payday. He's just trying to save up first, last and security deposit for an apartment. So when his brother gets out of prison, they have someplace to go. I mean, there are huge hurdles to him really making an honest living and 
pulling himself up out of not even knowing where his next meal is coming from. Vanessa and Chinita are on somewhat better financial footing, but, you know, these Mm. are not people who have extra money laying around in the bank. You know, I don't think Vanessa's family was like food insecure, but, you know, there were not a lot of luxuries. And at one point, Sal is, so Sal kind of has this experience of, you know, going over to the east side and working in this fancy spa and working in this sort of like fancy gym as a janitor. And at one point he encounters his boss at the gym, Barry White, and Chantal, who is from Connecticut. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. I'm from Connecticut. Um, so <laughs> I would never go to LA though, so, or get a fake tan. So, yeah. you know, but he's, he's thinking, what would it be like to have a family who could front you the cash to do the things you wanted to do, to start your own business, to move across the country, to become an actor? Flush. Next. I know Barry and Chantal, they're nice people, and I know what you're thinking. I'm jealous of them. The truth is I'm not. They had no more say over where and how they came to be born than I did. I just wonder who would I have turned out if I'd had what they had. Yeah, and I actually, I highlighted that too. Go ahead. Keep going. Keep going. I mean, I was just going to say that I love that he is thinking about this because he is kind of acknowledging how different his life situation is compared to these other people that he kind of has these interactions with and he's not blaming them for it he kind of just acknowledges that their life experience is just completely different from his and wondering how that shapes them and how that has shaped him you know where he has not had a safety net there is no like oh no somebody stole my money i'll just borrow a thousand dollars from my parents and it's just a very different way of going about your life and i i think that in communities where, you know, a lot of people who do not have a lot, I don't know if I'm, I hate to generalize, but I I do think that that is the story that Mia Hopkins was telling, where it's like this community, a lot of people in this community do not have a lot, but they share with each other because they know that, you know, maybe this month it's me and maybe next month it's you. So let's kind of share and pool resources as best we can to support each other because we kind of all know that we're we're struggling to get by. I love the the point of view of community here in a sense that Sal's community in my eyes actually elevated in this book versus pitied. Mm-hmm. And I think it really gives a good point of view that communities being seen as an insider is completely different than what's seen on the outside. Mm, yeah. So on the outside, one might see, you know, the rundown houses, you know, this and that. But on the inside, the community is actually full of life and very rich. I annotated this quote. It says, the thing with our neighborhood that outsiders can't see is the pride that we have in it. The way we take care of each other. Yes, I'm kind of a low life. Yes, I come from a long line of low lives. And yes, I'm an ex-con who can't get work except night shifts as a janitor. But this is my hood. I know the people in it and I would throw down for them as they would for me. So I took it that there is something so special in this place where they live. And that's why Vanessa doesn't even move away from it, mm-hmm. right? She, she doesn't move away because this is where her identity lies is within this community. But in my opinion, like despite crime and the obvious gang intrusion into this community, although I would have to say there's probably a lot of mafia stuff that goes on that I don't know anything about, right? In other communities that might seem a little better, mm-hmm. right? Who knows, mm-hmm. right? But that, that theirs is to Vanessa is a safe place. To those that live there, it is a safe place. I think that they know each other. And, and 
as somebody who, you know, I was born in the Philippines and we moved to the United States when I was nine. And there were pockets of Filipino communities that ended up banding together, I guess, if that's the right word, and then, you know, doing things together. And while it was not a bedrock for any kind of gang activity, in my opinion, there is that safety in there because you know the other person, know each other culturally in a way that there is like an inherent understanding. So it's really a great book to examine where they would take Sal and Trouble, because Trouble ends up coming back later, Sal and Trouble and even Sleepy, and not Sleepy, but... um, Spider? Spider that came back. I feel like the community would have accepted them back because they see beyond that, like they see the potential of the person. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really interesting. It's lovely. Yeah. I think that Mia Hopkins, and this is why I love this book, is she just writes everything in such a way that if you were to break down her sentences, they're very simple, but no like word is wasted. Everything, every sentence that she writes like has meaning. So there's so many nuggets, but in a sense, like this community has really, it's sort of like the home front. It's solid. So even if it's rife with violence and with gang activity, it is also solid in, in a certain way. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's a real dichotomy, right? It's well, it's interesting. I, I agree. Yeah. The dichotomy where, I, you know, I'm white. My parents moved away from the communities they grew up in. And we moved around a little bit. You know, I, I lived in three places as a child before I left for college. And I don't know if I ever felt super integrated into any community. And I think that particularly among like middle class white Americans, there is or at least I've seen in my experience, a sort of stand on your own two feet, figure it all out mm-hmm. yourself, be independent. If you're making it alone, it's even better than making it with the support right. of it's a- interesting. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I feel like I have really, at various points in my life, really missed and felt the loss of community. And I mean, my parents are really active in the Catholic church. And mm-hmm. I think the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, like I get wanting to be part of that because there's a community there, there's kind of like a built in, I join this church, I kind of find some people, a group of people who I can integrate into, and find some friends and have a place to hang out and and yada yada. And at various points in my life, I have then moved around and my husband and I have moved around with our daughter now, I have really craved that community. I mean, I do not want to make it sound like I'm looking through the community presented in this book with rose-colored glasses, Right. but there are parts of it that are so lovely that I'm like, oh, like when I had my daughter and I had this like breastfeeding support group, I was, yeah. I was thirsty for that, <laughs> you know, that sort of like social interaction with people who know what I'm going through and our babies were also very thirsty. But uh, that was a breastfeeding joke. (laughs) I got it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, it was like I was just so into it. And and then but then but then it's like then I move on and, you know, I move out of the community and then it's like I have to find a new one. And so it's not this like steady presence in my life. Right. And And it's it's sad. 
I'm very sad about it. <laughs> well, it's interesting because with all this stuff, I don't want to go into the RWA thing because that's not this conversation. But in terms of community, there is a thing where there's a time when I think somebody asked Vanessa, like, why don't you leave? And then she said, because this is my home. Did you already quote this? But the, because this is my home, she says a lot of good people live and work here. Generations and generations have raised their families here. We are part of this neighborhood. So she has thought about it. Do you know what I mean? Vanessa has thought about it. Like, why didn't I leave? And I remember having a conversation, I think it was with my agent, about when do you leave something and when do you stay? So my parents, when did they decide to leave the Philippines and why didn't they stay? It's one of those things where you have to add up like the pros and the cons and your gut feeling and what you want in the future. And this shows me because Vanessa chose to stay and because I trust Vanessa as a character that I would want to stay there. Does that make Yeah. I don't know if that makes I don't know if that's silly, but uh, because I trust her as a character that if she tells me that this is a, a neighborhood worth staying in, it's not a place where you can just say, "Well, it's violent, so I'm out." And it's sort of like that was forefront in my mind because of all this stuff with Romance Writers of America and I'm like, "When do I stay or do I go?" And then I'm looking out to the people who I trust. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting their takes and I'm trying to evaluate for myself, like, is this place more dangerous for me or is this a place that has hope to grow? So it's it's interesting. Communities are never just it's filled with so many different characters and everybody perceives it in a different way. And it's almost like when it comes to talking about whether or not a community is a great place to live or not a great place to live, it's really what that person is looking for, what that singular person is looking for in their lives and whether or not the community serves that person. Yeah, I was thinking because of all this stuff, I was thinking about it quite a bit. Any other topics you wanted to hit with the book? I don't know if there was like another passage that you wanted to talk about. This is about appropriation and identity. This is Sal. They copy the fashion and listen to the music. They daydream about what this life is like without understanding what it really is, what it really means. I'm frustrated by my clumsy explanation. I don't know how to say it. My body is not a product to sell. So this is the scene where Barry has offered Sal a job to be a personal trainer because he looks the part. And this is when uh, Sal is saying, I kind of don't like it that you're using me and my looks to further your job because you're fetishizing what you think I represent. I thought that was really an interesting tidbit on appropriation. I think also like uh, Sal's body his yeah. uh, regimen of physical activity had become like this intimate part of himself. Like it was how he right. stayed sane in prison. Right. And so then to commercialize that and sell it to other people where he's he's like, you know, as you said, it, it's like, I got this body because I was locked up in a cell 23 hours a day. Right. And people want to keep the part of like, wow, you look so cool with your tattoos and your hot muscle body and your abs and everything. I mean, I don't want to sign on for the 23 hours in a cell every day, but yeah. 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 And it kind of goes with that whole, the whole niceness thing. Like if I act nice, then I'll be accepted. So it's like, it was like a statement to like, people only want to see what they want to see. It kind of gave me this feeling like, you know, your friends will know who you are. Your family will know who you are. But most people 
will take what you put out there and that's what they consume. Mm-hmm. Folks might be willing to take you as you are as long as they don't see all the, all the dark spots. Mm. And Sal is, he's struggling with that because he's trying to get from ghost to Sal. When he says, oh, Vanessa actually sees me, all of me. It's like that's when he does his conversion. So it's, it's a really interesting thing about being your true self and people accepting you, even the dark spots, even the dark parts of you. It was such a good book. This book, or this or Trashed, or both, came up in the yeah. Superlatives episode. And afterwards, Keeney Allen was like, "You, I'm sorry, you have to read this. Like, I, yeah. I volunteer. Like, I will read this with you. Yeah. And so yeah. it's funny, because, like, I think then, like, just before that or after that you were like let's read this and I was like yes yes I'm aligning my interests perfectly I love this (laughs) and and I think it helps like I said you know when I met I knew Mia through online right Mm -hmm. but when I met her I was like oh my gosh she's really thoughtful you know that's it sealed it for me I'm like this is one of my favorite books ever and you had asked about the literary canon like if there was a book that I would add to the canon this would probably want to be one of those books because it's so compassionately written. This and Talia Hibbert's Get a Life, Chloe Brown. I think these two are, are written and with such tenderness that it's good for the soul. Thanks for listening to episode 22 of Shelf Love, a romance novel book club. Thank you to Tiff Marcello for joining me. You can find all the links to find Tiff online in the show notes. Coming up, Kennedy Ryan and I talk about weight loss as explored in romance novels, especially her novel Blockshot, which resonated with me on a very personal level. Tamara Lush gives me a primer on Wattpad and Radish and introduces me to serialized fiction that is definitely not romance, but what genre is it? I also have that polyamory mini-sode with Katrina Jackson on the schedule. You've all been waiting so patiently since episode 17 when Kat joined me to read An Unconditional Freedom by Alyssa Cole. In the upcoming mini-sode, we'll also talk about why discussing finances is such a source of conflict for real-life couples and how we'd like to see it explored in romance more. Thank you for listening to Shelf Love. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you check out the other amazing episodes. Another episode that discusses masculinity is episode 13 with Steve Amidown, a romance archivist. We read The Bromance Book Club by Lissa K. Adams, which explores men's friendships, masculine stereotypes, emotional idiots, and marriage. Rate, review, and subscribe to Shelf Love on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. You can also sign up for occasional updates and bonus content by joining other Shelf Lovelies on the Shelf Love email newsletter. You can find the link to sign up in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by Owner of a Broken Heart by Sharice Hodges. Sharice Hodges brings her signature sexy style to a charming new series about sisters who own a historic B&B in Charleston. For the four very different Richardson sisters, continuing their family's renowned bed and breakfast legacy is already a formidable job, but unexpected desire will challenge them in ways they never imagined. Owner of a Broken Heart is for fans of Brenda Jackson, who love edgy characters and close-knit families who help to pick each other up when mistakes are made, but aren't afraid to offer a swift kick in the butt when needed. You can find Owner of a Broken Heart by Cherise Hodges wherever books are sold. Learn more at kensingtonbooks.com. Shelf Love is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts.